Hello, this is Michael Canfield. Thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch, where we consider dogs, watches, life in the field, and go wherever curiosity takes us. Today on The Dog Watch, we have an opportunity to talk with Hal Herzog about our relationships with animals, especially dogs. Hal is both a psychologist and academic, and has a new edition of his book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals, coming out soon. He also writes the Animals and Us blog for Psychology Today. Hal helps us think about why we love dogs, how they have fit into our lives as humans in the past, and how they do now, why we care about them more than the mice we trap in our basements, and the dilemma that surrounds thinking of them as members of our family. He also helps us address some more urban myths, such as whether your dog will get help if you are injured, if people really do look like their dogs, and if there's any evidence for a special channel of communication between dogs and humans. Ultimately, we get a chance to approach different moral and philosophical perspectives on our favorite pets. Before we get started, our featured dog this week is Abbott, a Great Dane. This dog is three years old and has a harlequin white and black coat. Great Danes are one of the largest dog breeds, and they descend from mastiffs, Irish wolfhounds, and greyhounds. They were used for hunting large mammals such as bear and boar. They are not, in fact, Danish, but originated in the 1700s in Germany. Great Danes come in a range of colors from yellow to black to gray to steel blue, and they have mottled colors like brindle. Despite being bred for hunting, they are friendly and gentle, except when moving quickly and the laws of physics conspire against their general intentions. The most famous Great Dane, stylized of course, is the beloved cartoon dog, Scooby-Doo. Now, let's move on to our conversation with Hal Herzog. For those who love dogs, or cats, or animals in general, it isn't often that you get to speak with someone who can both contextualize their behavior and help clarify the complicated logic and emotions that go along with interacting with them. Today on The Dog Watch, we have just that opportunity. Our guest is Hal Herzog, a psychologist, professor, and behaviorist who has spent over 30 years studying how we as humans interact with animals. He is author of Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals, along with many other scholarly and popular publications. And he is a regular contributor to Psychology Today. Hal, thanks for joining us on the Dog Watch. Well, I'm happy to be to be on the on the podcast, Mike. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. Absolutely, it's a it's a big pleasure, and I've got a lot of things that I, I really have been looking forward to asking you about. Um, first, I understand you're in Western North Carolina. Uh, how's how's the weather there? And um, it, you know, I'm curious if I came over at some point for dinner and and I said, Hey, Hal, let's let's go grab dinner tonight. What what would be the things that we would go and eat in in, Nor- in that part of North Carolina? Well, the uh, weather's really great right now. It's about uh, 78 degrees outside and sunny and uh, starting to get a little, little, little tent, 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 tent of fall in the trees now. So we got that going. Boy, in terms of food, uh, we got two different kinds of things right here where I live. I live outside of Asheville, which it turns out to be is one of the foodie, <laughs> the foodie cities in the United States. So, yeah, we could go eat some uh, Indian, really good Indian food or Mexican food or French food or whatever. But... Uh, if you wanted Western North Carolina cuisine, I would take you to uh, one of our uh, really excellent barbecue places, where we would have uh, where we would have uh, pulled pork, 
And I would insist that you get some collard greens. I see. Hmm. That sounds sounds fantastic. And, uh, you know, we'll get into this, but it was interesting in your book, like, definitely barbecue came up and <laughs> the barbecue is complicated. <laughs> oh, by the way, ways. though, but if you're a vegetarian, um, we also have a, a surprising number of vegetarian vegan uh-huh. restaurants within 10 miles yeah. of my house. So, <laughs> Well, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. But, you know, definitely <laughs> after interacting with you, at least um, from a one-sided way with a book, I'm, I, you know, you, it makes you wonder a little bit. So... I'm also curious, just uh, because we're on the dog watch, are are there, I know you've had dogs and we'll talk about that, um, but are there particular dogs that are really common there, like hounds or or things that you wouldn't see as much in different parts of the country? Do you know? That's that's a very good question. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like that question about food. The uh, most representative dog from Western North Carolina in the the Smoky Mountains would, in our Mary, would be the plot hound, which is a... uh, a, a coon hound that was uh, basically bred uh, in this area. It's a unique breed. It's now recognized by the by the AKC, and it was used for hunting uh, raccoon and bear. But in reality, you don't see you don't see hounds as much as you used to, and our area has been gentrified. So the uh, animals, the 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 dogs that I've been impressed with is seeing the most are. Uh, just like the rest of the country, I'm seeing a lot of French bulldogs and increasingly I'm seeing a lot of doodles, labradoodles and golden doodles, and especially miniature versions of those doodles. So we're seeing the same trends here. Uh, my area, a lot of this has become a popular area for people to retire to. And, uh, you know, we're sort of we're sort of losing our canine culture in a way, you know, <laughs> yeah, the mainstream. Funny. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of why I wanted to ask just sort of what you what you see on the ground and probably not a lot of Bernadoodles. We see those up here in Minnesota, but probably a little little warm for them down there. I never heard of a Bernadoodle. Yeah, that's the Ber- a new one. yeah Bernie's Mountain Dog Doodles, which are mm-hmm. I've seen a few of. And, you know, it is it is what it is. Um, supposedly, they're really great. So. Well, let's let's get into it. I, you know, I guess my first question is, you're a university professor, psychologist, and in your book, you study, uh, you describe shifting from studying animal behavior to studying animal people. And I wonder for the listeners who are just getting familiar with your work, how did that happen? And, and what does it mean for a psychologist to study animal people? Well, I I really sort of started making that shift when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. And my doctoral dissertation started out being on the behavior of chickens. And I was specifically interested in uh, the uh, fear responses of baby chicks. And I was interested in comparing different types of strains of chickens, for example, white white leghorns versus, uh, you know, Rhode Island reds. And uh, my wife and I had moved to this at that time, very rural area um, in Western North Carolina. And it turns out that uh, one of my neighbors uh, was a cockfighter. And I was talking to him about, you know, his hobby, his pastime one day. And uh, and we talked about it. And I thought, you know, it'd be really interesting to to try and look at the behavior of, of gamecock chicks. You know, they're they've been selected for you know, thousands of years, not for egg laying, but for, but for not being afraid, you know, for, for fighting. I thought, well, their, well, their, their fear responses would be quite different. Well, the trick was I needed to get some uh, gamecock eggs. And so I was able to hook up with these local cockfighters and uh, they invited me to go to a rooster fight. And I, I said, of course, no. And then I started thinking about it. And, uh, 
I thought, you know, I'm living out here in the mountains now. I'm living in a real rural area. You know, my, my neighbors were not college professors. They were uh, you know, tobacco farmers and, and uh, you know, people that I, I liked a lot and had a lot of respect for. And so I agreed to go to a rooster fight. And um, so, I, and by the way, rooster fighting was, was illegal then as it is now. And yeah. so, you know, I was like, okay, I'm a college professor by day. Yeah. And then I'm hanging out with yeah. rooster fighters at... And, and so uh, I was first sort of, you know, really put off by it, to say the least. And then the more I started thinking about it, I thought, man, this is, there's an anthropology angle here. There's, a, there's something going on I don't understand. So to make a long story short, uh, I wound up writing my dissertation. Part of it was on the behavior of baby chicks, but the bulk of it, the most interesting part was on the anthropology and the psychological, uh, the, 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 the moral psychology of cockfighters. So I spent a couple of years going, you know, spending Saturday nights during the cockfighting season, uh, going to rooster fights in Western North Carolina and East, in East Tennessee and uh, interviewing rooster fighters and uh, going to their homes, you know, taking pictures of their roosters, taking pictures of their kids. Um, and what I discovered that the most interesting thing about cockfighters was that uh, there was not that much interesting about them. That is to say, they were just everyday people. You know, one guy was the mayor of a small town. Another was a pharmacist. Another one was a truck driver. A couple of them were farmers. A couple of them, a couple of them were police detectives. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they weren't, there, they weren't there to bust rooster fights. They were rooster fighters themselves. And, but the thing that's interesting about them is that they were just, they're, other than this, this blood sport that they were involved in, um, they were, you know, they're just like everybody else. And they went to church on Sunday. They were good family, family men. Most, almost all of them were men. Um, and I started thinking like, what's going, you know, what's going on here. And uh, so I wound up, wound up, you know, basically studying, studying the psychology of rooster fighters. Right. And then when I uh, got my dissertation, I finished that, I became interested in animal rights activists. And so I followed that up with a study of the opposite group, uh, in terms of their relationships with animals, their moral interactions with animals, was animal rights activists. And it turns out that the animal rights activists and some rooster fighters had some surprising things in common. And I just began to realize that, wait a minute, these, these human-animal interactions are, offer this window into broad and important issues about human nature and what it means to be a human being, what it needs to struggle with moral issues. And... Uh, you know, I ultimately wind up wound up uh, shifting my interest from uh, animal behavior to uh, the behavior of of animal people. Yeah, and I think that's something we've talked a little bit about previously too. It's easy for someone coming to your work, and there's so many different questions. There are questions about the animal behavior, like I'm interested in how dogs behave, um, but your research and interests really focus on how the humans side of that interaction works, like how the psychology of being a human, whether it's rooster fighting or pet keeping or animal rights, asking that question rather than how does the animal perceive or behave. Is that correct? That is correct. And there's also a larger issue. I was once interviewed uh, by a uh, uh, national public radio uh, uh, personality, uh, Frank Stashow in North Carolina. And uh, he, I walked into his office uh, in Durham, and, and he said, "Ah, Doctor Huzag, I read your I read your book." He said, "It's not really about animals, is it?" And I wanted to kiss the guy because he really <laughs> he really he really got it, and that I'm basically 
you know, I, I am interested in animal people. I love them. But, but one reason why I'm interested in is that they exemplify the sort of moral struggles that everyday people have to deal with whether they whether they know it or not and so to me this is a window into into big questions of, about human nature you know what does it mean to be a human in a morally complicated world and i just happen to study that in the context of the ethics of our interactions with other animals and this, this but not the philosophical stuff but the psychological part of that. well we'll uh, i want to get to that in a second but i first want to ask you i mean for you your cat Tilly comes up in your books and and also that you had labs and before just thinking about psychologically I wonder are you a dog person or a cat person it, it had me wondering and then as a psychologist can you help us understand are there truly cat people or dog people from a psychological perspective or is that just something that people say yeah well let's let's deal with the first part of that am I a dog person or a cat person <laughs> the interesting thing is uh I am fundamentally a dog person. I have not had a dog for over 15 years. And I and the reason is that I don't think it would be ethical for me to have a dog for a pet right now in my life. You know, my wife and I go go away for part of the year. And we, when we had dogs, we used to put them in a kennel. And I just, I, I hated doing that. I won't do it anymore. Uh, you know, our lifestyle is such that our dog would have to be left alone for for periods of time and i so that's one reason why we have a one reason why we have we have a cat uh but i still consider myself deep down inside a dog person and i recently spent a week with my my daughter katie out in uh out in uh, washington state and uh she's she's got this amazing uh uh labradoodle and it really made me miss a dog because <laughs> that dog gave so gives so much you know and it was it was so much so much fun to play with. But the, uh, what about the question of other differences between dog people and cat people? Well, if you ask people, uh, my recollection is there have been surveys that done this, is about twice as many people say that they're they're a dog person than a cat person. Uh, but what does that mean? Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you actually live with a dog or a cat. Like I guess we're most of a dog person, even though we have we we have have a cat and have for you know you know 10, 10 years. Um, but are there personality differences? And it turns out that there are personality differences. And uh, a number of studies have now shown there's a pattern of consistency is that people that say that they're dog people tend, for example, to be more extroverted. Uh, people that say they're cat people tend to be more introverted uh, and tend to be more anxious. Uh, they also tend to be uh, more open to new experiences. However, with that being said, um, the differences are really quite small. So that if you uh, if you know that a person's a cat person or a dog person, you're going to be, and you think, well, if it's a dog person, they're going to be extroverted and they're a cat person, they're going to be neurotic. You're going to be wrong more than you're going to be right. And so, for example, Sam Gosling, who, uh, who did a lot of this work, he's at University of Texas, did some of this early work. He's also studied, for example, uh, things like uh, personality differences and your musical preferences and even what's in your refrigerator. And so he can tell you more about your personality from what's in your refrigerator <laughs> or what your music preferences are than you can by knowing you're a dog person or a cat person. So the differences are real, but uh, they're fairly small. That being said, I recently came across a fascinating body of research, which is incredibly consistent over a number of studies and in different countries, 
looking at the relationship between uh, dog owner personalities and the personalities of their dogs. And one thing emerges, emerges from all of these studies is that anxious neurotic owners tend to have anxious, neurotic, fearful dogs. And it's a really fascinating phenomena. I'm convinced it's a real phenomena. The reasons for that are unclear. I can think of a number of possible reasons, but it's a fascinating uh, body of literature that most people don't know about. So I have to follow up on that briefly, like that they choose anxious or neurotic breeds or within the breed, the they somehow living with an anxious, neurotic person, it makes the dog anxious or neurotic. Well, that is what I call the causal arrow problem. And it haunts much of the empirical research on human-animal interactions. And you said it beautifully. Uh, there are some researchers that have argued that their data suggests that your later theory is more likely to be, to be, to be correct. Um, that it's anxious owners that create anxious dogs. However, I'm not completely convinced of that. So, for example, uh, it might be that your preferences in dogs affect that, uh, and that could be reflective of your personality. But for example, we know that small dogs, there's overwhelming evidence that small dogs tend to be more anxious and neurotic than big dogs. Right. So, uh you know, so that so it may be that that how you how you how you choose the dog says something about you, which is related to the dog. But I, but I think you've got your uh, you know, you know to, to me the question you ask is very insightful, and that's the uh, that's the interesting question. Yeah, and it seems like it not to go off to the sort of human angle, but I think there's a, there's a similar question for humans, right? Like, what's the effect of parents on their offspring? With respect to things like that, and, and exactly right. And, and by the way, there could be a there could be a genetic component to. to we know that there's a genetic component to to human to human personality, and it's possible that there's a genetic component to uh, uh, you know the anxiety in both humans humans and dogs. Is that those things somehow could intersect in the choices of our pets? Yeah, great and. I wanted to kind of move on to something that relates to your question of either having a dog or a cat. Um, and I really appreciated in the book your framing of what I think you called the moral, un uncomfortable moral middle, or I can't quote exactly what your words were, but of sort of pet ownership of just where we exist as humans in the human experience. And I, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you mean by that. And maybe even starting with a phylogenetic bias, which is kind of how I think of it, like some some of the things, some animals on the phylogenetic tree, we have um, a bias toward, we like dogs, for example. And I'm wondering, you, you know, why do you feel okay about leaving a cat on its own versus a dog? And, and does that reflect a bias or is there underlying um, biological reality to why you make that choice? Um, that's a, that's, that's a, uh, that, that, that's a good question. I, I would argue that as with, uh, many, many of the issues that psychology deals with, we have to be careful about what I call the myth of single causation and it could, and both of those, both of those, both of those things could be operating. Uh, one of the things that's very clear, uh, from my studies and the studies of other people that, uh, over the last 20 years is that, our the way that we think about different species is not necessarily rational. 
So, for example, the example one of the examples that I use is uh, uh, two in, two endangered species, uh, both in Asia. Uh, one is the giant panda, which people care about a lot, and uh, you know they have these big you know these big eyes, and they're they're but they're in the category of what's called charis- charismatic megafauna. You know they're so they're so endearing that the World Wildlife Fund uses them as their logo, but. Uh, to me, a much more interesting and even rarer species is the uh, giant Chinese salamander, which is the largest amphibian on Earth. It's basically a five to six foot bag of brown slime <laughs> with little beady <laughs> eyes. And you don't see anything about them in the, you know, the endangered status of the well, the, well, the giant Chinese salamander has a lot of uh, things going against it. You know, one thing is the shape of its eyes. You know, right. some studies find that, that found that found that the study of an animal's a species' eyes is one of the biggest predictors of how much money people are willing to give it to give to save it. And a recent study also looked at just general cuteness of species, and they found that we there was a huge relationship between how cute people perceived a species and how much they think it deserved our protection. Um, so the phylogenetic scale. Uh, I don't think we like dogs because of the phylogenetic scale. Right. Um, for example, uh, uh, pigs uh, are are now on the same branch of the phylogenetic scale, but in terms of uh, you know they're both mammals. They uh, have they're they're intelligent, they're sentient. Um, yet we we think of dogs and pigs in completely different different categories. So I think what our attitudes towards animals really exemplify is not the the uh, phylogenetic scale. But what my uh, colleague Arnold Arlu calls the sociozoological scale, which is how society and culture uh, shapes us to uh, perceive animals. So, for example, you know, dogs are a great example. Um, that dog, which is uh, so so cute in Kansas, uh, it can be an item on the item item on the the menu in Korea, and if you go to Kuwait. Um, it could be considered vermin because uh, in parts of is- some branches of Islam, dogs are considered unclean. So it's it's our culture that defines how we perceive dogs more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so real that I even felt like I needed to brace my finger from the mute button when you just said that about them being <laughs> being a, a meal or being vermin, right? Like, it's hard <laughs> to think of it. Can I have listeners even, should I censor this? That's that's inside me right now. If your listeners <laughs> are that upset by the idea, I'm totally we, we, had, we had this food, it's called the hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, but, know. you know, there's the fact that I think it's hard for people to think about that, right? It's, it's a challenge, right? To be like, oh, people do eat dogs or people, you know, dogs are find a different place. And, you know, we just talked to someone um, in India about the stray dog population. And that's a very different, you know, the free ranging dogs is a very different way to conceptualize dogs. Um, and so it's, it's interesting when we have that sort of different scale than a phylogenetic scale. And I'm kind of curious, you've thought a lot clearly about that, both as a researcher studies humans and as an individual, this question of the difference between the heart and the mind or the the sort of logical versus the emotional approach to decision making etc what do at the end of the day what where does that leave us hal 
in making these decisions because on one hand you can make a justification for you know our pets and and seeing that it's really important to have them or that it's a you know an aspect of um just the human experience and then there are these moral quandaries that are really complicated um how do you integrate that and i I'm, there may not even be an answer to that but i i think to me that's one of the questions when the you know rubber hits the road what do you decide to save and what do you decide not to save or what do you decide to protect or not um that's a complicated question it's an extremely complicated question and basically what you have done is uh you've basically summarized the main point of my book right there i mean just exactly what you said um in the uh in the um the uh the proposal that i they got me the book deal with Harper. Um, it basically ended. I ended the proposal dealing with these issues. Who do we, what do we trust? Do we, tr- do we trust our heart or do we trust our brain? And I make the argument that e- both of those lead to consequences that are unacceptable. And I basically had painted myself into a corner of which I, I, I could not get out of. And when I was, I was uh, talking to the uh, my potential you know, publisher at Harvard, Jonathan Burnham, he said, he looked at me and he said, you know, you need a last chapter to this book, like you can't leave readers there. And I said, I I know, uh, you found me out. You <laughs> you, you found me out. I'm a fraud. I, I'm not providing readers any answer. And I I said, well, I think I can come up with something when I write the book. And I did. And so what I wound up doing was I, I still believe that you're that you're correct in your analysis. We're, we're the only I'm I'm a I'm a speciesist at heart and the thing that I think that there are things about humans that make us unique. And to me, the most important of these is this struggle between heart and and head that we have to deal with, which is so, so difficult. And chimpanzees don't have to think about that stuff, you know? Orcas don't have to think about it. Dolphins don't have to think about it. We are the only species that has to struggle with that. To me, that has moral consequences. Uh, Some of my my friends, animal rights activists, believe that I'm completely wrong about that. Um, But what I did was I found what I consider a couple of really good people. And so I turned to a type of, of, uh, of, of philosophy that basically says, well, there's there, there there there's wisdom in this world, and we should turn to uh, look at the wise people. It's called virtue ethics. So basically, I write about two people. You know, one of them, Michael Michael Mountain, who was involved in uh, establishing one of the world's finest uh, animal shelters, and the other other one was a, a woman in uh, South Carolina who basically spent her time trying to rescue baby sea turtles. And so I don't I don't have a clean answer to answer that. I think that. Uh, moral consistency can drive you crazy. Um, um, I think that uh, we have to learn. You only go around once in life and learning to live with moral inconsistency uh, is part of is something we really need to do uh, if we're going to live a happy, fulfilling life. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. And I feel like an important outcome of my experience in reading the book is really bringing that back. And I, I also think i tend to be sort of relatively moderate on certain things. And the, the conflict also between saying, well, what that means is you should just sit in the middle 
And obviously the extremes of some of them, like you talk about in the book, animal rights activists that resort to terrorism, right? Or, you know, people who might advocate for animals having no rights, right? Those are some really wide extremes, which it seems clear to me morally, you can make a pretty good argument that those can be winnowed away, that those can be out of the equation. But then how close are you to the middle or how do you balance? It's kind of false to us to really wrestle with and come to come to our own path. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, th- I think that, that that path also that path also changes as our as our culture evolves. Let's take, for example, pet keeping. Over the last 10 years, one, one of the phenomena that we've had uh, we've seen really over the last 30, 40 years is really increasingly coming to the fore is this phenomena called the humanization of pets, which is really the humanization of dogs. In fact, when people talk about pets, most <laughs> of the time they're really thinking about dogs. And dogs are the closest, the closest to us in terms of uh, terms of co-evolution. Cats are basically they're, they're only they're only semi-domesticated. You know, they're they're ha- they're half wild. Uh, dogs aren't like that. They they evolved with humans and they understand us. Uh, to a degree that other other species don't. Um, there's there's some reasons for that, but increase. And so what we've had is this humanization of pets. So when you ask people, uh, do you consider your pets a member of your family? Uh, depending on how the question is asked in the survey, between 85 and 90 percent of people say yes that they think of them as members of the family. I mean, surveys have asked, you know, if you were stuck on a desert island, would you rather be with your your dog or your your best friend, a surprising number of people say they'd rather be they'd rather be with rather be with their dog, and so we're increasingly thinking of the dogs in our lives, the pets in our lives, as as creatures that have uh, they're sentient, that is they're they're conscious, that they're they're autonomous beings, uh, that they're capable of making choices. The problem with the humanization of pets is that if we really think of pets as people. We don't have the right, for example, to uh, de-sex them because we don't because it's inconvenient for us to want to have have kids. We don't ha- we don't have, you know, we don't have the right to, uh, for example, uh, every time your dog goes outside, it has to be tied to a rope, which we call a leash. Um, that uh, our dogs eat whatever we want them to eat, and we control every aspect of their lives. And I was, I was just before COVID, my wife and I spent a week on the island of Tobago. And for the first time, I was exposed to street dogs on, on Tobago. And I was convinced that if I come back in the, in the next life as a dog, I want to be a street dog on Tobago. I, I don't want to be a dog living in somebody's house that you constantly have to live in the house unless you get, unless you get, unless you have a collar put on you and, and, and have to go for a walk with your owner and maybe go to the dog park. You know, so so the, the problem with the humanization of pets is we more the more we think of pets as people, as autonomous beings, as our four-legged children, the less right we have to keep them as pets. And so I'm increasingly thinking, like, you know, there may come there may come a point where we really, if we take the ethics, if we take animal ethics seriously, that um keeping keeping animals as pets may is ethically problematic. Uh, it raises really serious moral questions. Oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, we've also bred dogs, intentionally bred dogs for deformities because we want them to look in certain ways, which makes them miserable. Yeah, it's, you know, when you start marching down these logical paths, <laughs> right, you, you go places where it's it's uncomfortable. Um, there's yes. no question about it. Absolutely. And, 
you know, each one of us kind of is at a different place on that. Um, but truly, it was interesting when we spoke with this um, researcher, Anandita Badra, in um, Kolkata. Um, at the end of our conversation, she was talking about the dogs having their own lives because they're out yeah. there on their own. They're communicating. And she was sort of saying some of the same things, like, who are we to tell them to bring them into our homes because then they're not with their friends or their family members or whatever. And it did challenge me. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm going to hold on to Lily and Pepper, that's for sure, because they're very important members of our family and I'm not quite down the path yet um, there because I, I love to have them. And But I think if you're going to, it also challenges you to make sure that, that you really consider what their, what their life is like and um, what if it's about you and what if it's about them. Right, and 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 I think uh, increasingly dog research is canine research is is raising these questions too. For example, Clive Wynn, uh, in his really excellent book uh, "Dog Is Love," talks about uh, a lot of the research he's done, and he's he's concluded that dogs are are many dogs are so in love with humans that to leave them alone for long periods of time is really a form of cruelty. And, and and he argues that if uh, if you sh- if you have to leave your dog alone during the day for more than six hours, you should not have a dog. And in Sweden, it's illegal to leave your dog home all day by itself. And so you know, I I started thinking about this. I didn't used to think about this when we you know we had dogs. We typically leave our, our dogs alone all day. You know, my wife and I would go to work, the kids in school. I never thought about that. Well, now I'm starting to think about it. And I, I'm finding I'm finding pet keeping increasingly increasingly uncomfortable. I'm not getting rid of my pet, by the way. I'm always going to have a pet, but I'm a hypocrite. You know, I'm a yeah. hypocrite. I yeah. I understand the evils of meat, and I still eat it. So I understand the problems of pet keeping, but I'm not getting rid of my pet. <laughs> That's helpful, right? And I think it's you know again we have to have the courage to ask the questions, think about it, and make our own moral decisions based on that rather than not thinking about it at all. I think it's important um partly because you know I think with us the days when I feel very fortunate that there's a place down the street that you know has a you know it's one of these doggy daycare places, but they have a big you know lots of dogs there and the, the dogs seem to love it and you can watch them on a video screen and they're running around chasing each other and they seem to have a great time right and be stimulated or whatever so there are these choices that we can make that might make things better too um and it does encourage us to ask those questions um so i have a sort of short lightning round of questions that i'd like to ask you. <laughs> okay and then Let's i have two, two, I like more, the idea. <laughs> two more sort of general things that i really want to make sure before i let you go um that i i, I just i feel like i'd be very upset with my myself if I didn't ask you your perspective on. So here's the, can we do the lightning round now? Let's do it. Okay. So here is sort of for what I would think of as sort of urban myth questions. So number one, my dog, Lily, right? If I get injured or I fall in the dog park or at home and she's the only one here, is she going to try to get help for me? If you read the first version of my, uh, the first edition of my book, uh, the answer would be no. However, the second edition, I changed my mind. Uh, some studies have recently found that she, in fact, might actually help you. So inconclusive on the what you think of as the Lassie effect. Uh, inconclusive, but maybe more toward the possibility that there is a Lassie oh, really? effect. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Second, can Lily tell I'm coming home before I arrive? 
If you're Rupert Sheldrake, he would say yes. If you ask, he's one that did the research which showed that. Uh, that research has not been able to be replicated by anybody. His idea that dogs have a form of ESP that, that, that's, that he called morphic fields uh, is so unlikely as to, I would say, that's a myth. That was my that was my third question about ESP. Is there any evidence, scientific evidence, for sort of extra sensory per- perception or, or other channels with dogs, especially? Uh, there's one paper on the possibility, uh, but it's wrong. <laughs> Great, <laughs> and, and that's what I'm asking for for you is in your professional opinion. Dr. In my Dog. professional <laughs> opinion, in my professional opinion, there's there's a. It, 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 it's, it's, quite, it's quite possible that dogs that dogs can, for example, sense, and they do, can sense, can sense human emotions. Sure. But can they do it from a distance and in a different room than you are? Or if you're at the store, you know? No. And to be fair to the dog, they do, you know, they hear the UPS driver like two miles away, it seems like, right? So they can hear really well. Like when I don't even realize it's coming and, and Lily's at the door, or time frame they know in the afternoon after they get their yeah. snack that like so there are a lot of reasons that they might anticipate it and we might look at it and not think about those variables and say oh gosh neat um thank you last question do people who abuse animals as children go on to be violent criminals uh, most of them do not go on to be violent criminals that's not true that's a myth so some people who go on to be criminals have abused animals, but most people who abuse animals actually go on to be normal functioning members of society. That it actually seems like from your book, if I'm correctly stating it, that a lot of people do have some of those kinds of interactions and, and often have a moral quandary and, and then go on to be totally normal functioning members of society. Is that, is that a good way to say it? Yeah, that's a real good way to say it. Okay, great. Well, thanks for the speed round. You, you, you really knocked them down. Um, I have two other issues. The first one is about, you sort of touched on it, but I read a recent article, or actually just the abstract of in Anthrozoos, where a Japanese team was building on this question of, do people look like their dogs? And they actually did an experiment where they, they even covered the, the mouths of the dogs. And so people could only see sort of the eyes and suggested that people could match potential dog with potential owner sort of non-randomly. So I'm just curious what you would say about the question for people who haven't done all this research. Like, do people look like their dogs? Okay, let's, let's frame the question uh, a little bit differently. Do, do, let's, say, let's say, do some do some people look like their dogs? Okay, the average person doesn't look like their dog. They're, when I first, their first study was done, that was done, was done, was done by researchers at University of California at San Diego. And they uh, looked at, they took pictures of people in dog parks and pictures of their dogs and then did the experiment that you suggested. They had people try and match uh, the picture of the dog with the, with the person. And they found that they did it better than a chance level. Right. So that doesn't mean they were right most of the time, but it means that they were right more than you would have predicted. So, for example, if you'd predict they'd be right 50% of the time, they might be right 60% of the time. Well, I didn't believe that. And uh, I was skeptical about that one. However, there have been now three or four studies in different countries that have replicated that effect. <laughs> and so I think there's something to it. You know, I, th- I think there's I think there's something to it. It's it, 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 what people tend to look like their spouses, uh, for example. And uh, so the question is, why, you know, do they pick it? The, do they pick your spouses on the, this is that question that we asked initially. 
causal, the causal arrow problem. The first researchers actually controlled for that, and they concluded it, the people didn't people and dogs did not grow to uh, look like each other over time. They looked at how they looked at how long people were living with the dog. So it's possible that there's some effect, probably a pretty small effect, but possibly probably a real effect where people do. Uh, choose their pets to some extent based on what they look like so it's not it's it's not a complete myth so not a complete myth but certainly not overly predictive and and you know in one way you kind of probably a lot of the things that people would say oh that person looks like their dog we have to be careful about what information we're reading, right? When we know now so much more about implicit bias and how we conceptualize the world yeah. as, a, as a human being, like right. we have to be super careful about kind of what pieces of information. And then we go to somebody else who, well, that person doesn't look like their yeah. dog. Um, that's a, just a super complicated question. And, you know, I guess it, at least to me, long hair, if somebody has, you know, long hair, it makes sense that they might have a, you know, a slight preference for an right. animal that has longer hair. Right. And that, that's probably almost enough right. to, to create that kind of effect. Is, is yeah. that, is that kind of the level we're talking about? Yeah. 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 I think that, I think that's exactly right. The effect is possibly real, but it's, it's relatively small. In other words, that the percentage of time you're going to be correct, you know, it's, 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 it, it, and it, it seems to be better than chance, but not that much better. Okay. I want to be respectful of your time. I have one last sort of question and it's, it's in some ways a hard one to ask. Cause I'm not sure I n- want to know the answer partly because of how I feel personally. And I know that the answer doesn't actually affect whether it's true or not for me personally, because it's we're sort of asking about larger trends. But it's really a question about the psychological benefit of pets. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with dogs, as you said. Where are we with that? I know you've written a good bit about it even recently, you know, since the book, like in Psychology Today, et cetera, about the question, what's the benefit of having a dog psychologically? Do we know? Um, there's a lot of industry and and um, people who have animals who are there to help them um, psychologically. Okay, um, let's look at the um, at the pet industry. How the pet industry uh, describes what's called the pet effect. Um, if you believe uh, the uh, groups, for example, pet industry trade groups like the Human Animal Bond uh, have a Human Animal Bond Research you know, Initiative, they argue that there's this phenomenon called the pet effect, which if you get a pet the pet will make you a healthier, happier person. And when, when I say healthier, it'll, the dog will make you live longer, less likely uh, to survive uh, a heart attack, uh, lose weight, um, um, make you less depressed and make you, make you less lonely. Right. And hence, and some of, their, uh, some of their recent books on this topic argued basically that everybody, everybody should have a dog. Well, of course, if you sell pet food, we would love it for everybody. You know, everybody in America to have to have, to have a pet food. Um, and and when I and when I first started, uh, I know people that do research in the area in this area, and I've been uh, around since these. Uh, you know, the first research uh, came out showing that uh, pet owners, for example, were more likely to survive uh, heart attacks. First studies done by Erica Friedman back in 1980. Uh, Erica's a friend of mine, and I, I like her research a lot. Um, and I, and for years, I was a, a, a huge fan of the pet effect idea. And then I wrote this book, and I had to have a. And I was studying animal people. I wasn't studying studying human pet relationships, but I needed I needed to deal with this 
issue of the impact of pets on health. And I expected to find that there was a big impact of, of getting a pet on health. And as I did the research, I was surprised that I started coming across these articles that found that there was no difference in the health and happiness of pet owners and non-owners. And in some cases, they were worse off. And I wound up with three stacks of papers of, of reprints on my, on my office floor, you know, how I file my stuff when I'm writing. Um, you know, one was that the pet effect is real. Uh, one was that there was no meaningful differences between pet owners and health and happiness and non-owners. And the other was that, that uh, other studies found that pet owners were more likely to, to be obese, you know, were more, like, were more likely to not survive from their heart attack. So it turned out that this pet effect is much more complicated. The research is much more complicated than I had anticipated. Um, and they take, for example, the claim, they take, for example, the claim that uh, getting a pet will make you less depressed. Well, I recently took a deep dive into this question and I located 30 papers that had been published on the, where they had, where they had looked at depression levels using standardized measures of pet owners and non-owners. And of these 30 papers, five of the papers, only five of the papers found that pet owners were less depressed. Five of the papers found they were more depressed and the, le and, and, and the rest of them found that there were no differences. I then looked at loneliness, exactly the same pattern. So the pet industry uh, trade group uh, you know, publicity saying that, you know, pet owner, you know, getting a pet will, will make you less lonely and less depressed. That's not supported by, that's not supported by the preponderance of evidence. Some studies have found that, but some studies have found just the opposite. And so to me, I, I've said that this, you know, this pet effect you know, should be regarded as a hypothesis rather, rather than a fact, rather, rather than a fact. However, here's the, here's the real problem for me. And I still can't wrap my head around this. I recently visited my daughter in, in Seattle and you know, she and her wife have uh, a year or so ago uh, adopted this uh, Labradoodle puppy. And that has been an incredibly positive thing in their lives. I mean, this dog is the best dog in the world. It, it's so enthusiastic to see, to see me, to see them. It deeply loves them. At one point, you know, she had to go to the store or something like that. And her dog, Katie, my daughter, you know, had to go to the store, you know, came back an hour later. And for that hour, that dog sat there at the, at the door, looking out, looking out the door, waiting for her to come back. And when he saw her, it was so enthusiastic. So here's the problem. You know, I, I feel when my wife, when my wife goes away, goes to a meeting or something like that, she's gone for a couple of days or a week. I feel like having my cat around, you know, makes me happier and less depressed and stuff like that. However, the research just does not support that idea to the degree that I want it to. And I, I don't know why that's the case. To me, that's the big mystery. Um, is it... Um, the, 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 one, of the, one of the problems with the pet effect is that pet owners are healthier and happier. That's true. However, pet owners also tend to have more money. They, they tend to be wealthier. They tend to live in houses where there's yards and rather than you know, live in apartments. They, they, tend to be, uh, they tend to be younger. They tend to be healthier to begin with. And so it might be, not, might be that not that, that getting a pet causes you to be healthier, but that being healthier and having more money causes you to have there's all you know we there's also there are racial differences there are there are socioeconomic differences there are sex differences all associated with these claims independent of pets you know associated with the impact of 
the positive impact of pets on ha- health and happiness. And increasingly, studies are showing that are finding no difference. Good studies, big studies, are finding no differences between pet owners and non-owners. These studies are coming out more and more all the time. And so I don't know. I'm. Uh, I know that we that the pet industry claims are exaggerated. That all these feel-good media, media stories, you know, that you hear about the impact of pets on people that say it's supported by science. You know, they, they exaggerate the positive. They don't talk about the negative studies. Um, we have a huge file drawer effect where researchers are only more inclined to publish their positive results. Um, and so it's a problem. Yeah. I I guess, though, it, it seems like what the research says is that on average, if you get if a random person gets a pet, they're not going to be happier because of getting that pet. That is the way that I interpret the preponderance of evidence. Now, there have been some studies that show, you said a random person. And, you know, there was a pretty good study that showed that women whose husbands had died recently and got a pet, that they seem to be better off. So so I think that's the interesting question. It's like who benefits and who doesn't. You know, a recent study uh, of uh, teenagers that got pets found overwhelming evidence that there was absolutely no impact of pets on their psychological mental health. And this is done by a really good researcher, Megan Mueller at Tufts University. And Megan's a pet lover, you know, she, she didn't want to find that, but she had the courage to publish her. She's one of the researchers that have the courage to publish their negative results. And I was thinking about this morning when I was walking the dog and I, I want to make sure that people understand and that I'm clear it doesn't mean that having Lily and Pepper couldn't have made me happier. It abs like it's possible that I'm one of the people that it's like it has a really nice effect on, right? Like it it it's not that the research doesn't say pets can't make you happier. It just means that on average, pets as a remedy for these things don't work across the board. I think that I think that I think that is a, a very good way to put it, and I would and I would agree with that statement. I think it's also possible that our measures aren't picking up important things. You know, for example, with depression and loneliness, uh, there's a couple of scales that that are typically used in these studies, and it might be that there there's there's an aspect of that that we're just not measuring correctly. Right. Yeah, and I think at least for me, you know, you look at the health data around diet and those kinds and all those studies that are huge, and it's <laughs> it's hard to get you know, convergence there as well. And I think what I want to make sure is that we don't want to take those data as something they're not, right? Because if you were going to say, well, I'm a clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, I should start prescribing dogs, the data say, no, that's not a a good remedy across the board for those those, um, mental health considerations, right? But it doesn't mean that like in certain situations, getting a dog, like it sounds like your daughter. And I think for me, like that's been really positive, right? And and we're not saying that that's not true, right? And I think sometimes people read those things and say, oh, that means that challenges that experience. And and that's not what those studies mean. Is that correct? No, I think think, think that's that's exactly correct. And remember, we're dealing with especially with these epidemiological studies, we're dealing with really large samples. Yep. And it's, it's very possible that some benefit. And, it's very, and the other thing is that, that there's downsides to pet keeping. You know, uh, I, had a, I had a friend whose uh, dog died and she went into a very serious depression for six months. I've got uh, uh, 85,000 Americans a year are taken to the hospital emergency rooms because of fault. They break bones because of falls caused by tripping over the pets. You know, dog, dogs are the second biggest cause 
Petra, second biggest cause of conflicts between neighbors. So it's not all sweetness and light. And on the other hand, you know, there's there's tons of getting reasons for having a pet in your life, and and but making making the idea that you're going to get one because you're going to live longer. You know, that's like that's like telling someone that, you know, we know we know that uh, one of my friends pointed this out recently. It's like telling somebody about getting a dog that they're going to live longer. It's telling one they should get so, telling somebody they should get married because it's going to make them live longer. You know, <laughs> it's not. It's, <laughs> that's the wrong. Yeah, definitely the wrong reason. It's the wrong reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that's helpful. Right. Then when, when we start to pull these things apart, you know, there's moral questions, but also just questions of, are you ready? I was thinking, you know, our, our puppy has been up in the middle of the night whining sometimes. And, and I was thinking about what you've said in your book and in some of your writing about the downsides. I'm like, yeah, there are some downsides. It's not all sweetness and love. It's like, why won't you be quiet so I can sleep? I mean, I, I mean, um, I've got, you know, I've got, you know, I, you know, I've got a story in my book that like about, about you know this, this couple that I that I know that you know they got they wound up with these two dogs and the and the dogs basically destroyed their lives and they wound up they wound up getting divorced in large measure because of conflicts associated with living with these dogs. So you know I'm I am not anti-pat. I've I've always had you know I've been called like you know the, the anthrozoological Grinch, you know, and uh, but I'm not. You know, I love I love pets, I love animals. I spent my life studying animals, I devoted my life to this. But what I don't like is the commercial claims by the hundred billion dollar pet products industry, uh, hyping hyping uh, research in my area. What, what do I consider? You know, I, 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 I hate to see science science become a tool of industry. I'm troubled by that. And it seems like in the, at the end of the day. Right, especially around those claims, we have to be careful about what the claims mean and what they don't. But individual experience is important, and it's possible that we don't we don't have the full story. We don't have the full story that you should just go outside and buy plenty of dogs and everybody needs a dog. That that just isn't supported by data. It also doesn't mean that you know our experiences about loving pets, et cetera, aren't valid and true. And no, they're no, really no they're they're. They're extremely valid. I mean, that's the reason why I study animal people is because I see the importance of animals in people's lives, you know, all the way from animal trainers that I've studied, you know, circus animal trainers to professional dog breeders to, you know, vet veterinarians. And I I probably more than most, most people are insensitive to the, the incredible importance animals yeah. have, in, have in people's yeah. lives. Well, I wanted to thank you for your time and for sharing so much knowledge and you clearly your long career of researching this brings so much um, wisdom to these conversations that help us make sense of it for ourselves and feel good about where we land and, and where we are on the path of figuring out how we're going to interact with animals. So thank you so much for being on the dog watch and helping us think about um, our relationships with animals in a new way. Well, thanks for, thanks for having, having me on the podcast and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again to Hal for sharing his wide knowledge of how humans interact with animals, as well as his honest and genuine perspectives with us. The conversation certainly makes us think harder about our relationships with animals. If you haven't done so already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and send the podcast along to a few new people to share dogs with them as well. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. This is Michael Canfield. 
and I look forward to the next time we are together on The Dog Watch. <laughs>